My name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm uh, privileged this morning to bring the Word of God to you. It will be in Romans 6 just in a little bit. Um, but this time of year is kind of a, 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 a time of change. If you look outside, uh, we've started to see those leaves turn. And it's, it's an amazing cycle that we see. Uh, every year it happens, but we go from this summertime where everything is lush and green and, and full of life, but then there's this death that happens. <laughs> All the leaves die and they go and, and, and it's this, it, it's kind of sad, but it's really beautiful all at the same time. But then we see next spring buds begin to bloom and, and, things, and things emerge again as life. And, and trying to think of something to sort of relate what we're going to be talking about this morning, all analogies break down, but the point there is that there's this death that happens and then in the next spring, there's this beautiful life that occurs, but it doesn't occur without the death. And so that might seem like a dark place to start this morning, but that's where I think picture I kind of want to start with um, as we open to Romans 6 in a little bit. So once again, I want to put this slide up in front of you, um, not that one, but the next one that kind of gives the, the whole picture of where we've been going. And, and this is sort of... Um, the outline to where this gospel-saturated life series is. So chapters 1 to the middle of chapter 3 presented our need for the gospel. So these chapters in and of themselves, if that's all we had, were those first ones would kind of be hopeless because they unmistakably and undeniably describe the sinful nature of man. And the consequences of that sin nature is the wrath of God. And it seemed like we spent several weeks, if you remember when we started in the beginning, just talking about the wrath and sin. And it's not necessarily topics that we love to preach on or that you love to hear, but we must not ignore them because they are in the word of God. So then we get to this great shifting point about the middle of chapter 3, in which we are calling the way of the gospel. And Paul introduces this doctrine, this wonderful doctrine of salvation by grace through faith alone. It's amazing because what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, his substitutionary work on the cross, it makes a way to escape the wrath of God because Christ's death satisfied the wrath of God and freed us from the slavery of sin. The work of Christ is full. It's complete. It's, it's so gracious um, it, it's, it's so amazing, so gracious, that Paul concludes at the end of chapter 5 with these words. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is an amazing truth. No sin is so great that can outdo the grace of our Lord Jesus. There is no sin that is so sinful that can outdo the grasp of the saving work of Christ. The, the greater the sin, the more grace. But Paul, being a smart and experienced man, knows that the critics are coming. Thus, he launches into chapter 6. And therefore, a new section in this series that we're going to call the life in the gospel. So the need for the gospel has been clearly seen because we're sinful. We have a sin nature. The way of the gospel has undoubtedly been presented in Christ. And now we have what is we're calling the life 
in the gospel? How does this gospel manifest itself in our day-to-day living, in our day-to-day life? So Paul just stated, grace abounded all the more. And it's an amazing fact, but he wasn't ignorant of the fact that that would be challenging for some to understand what he meant. Thus, he answers the questions, some that may not even have been asked yet, but he knows full well the objections and the misunderstandings are coming. He knows to the typical religious Jew, this would have been completely out of this world and unfathomable to even think that one could have salvation by grace alone. That there could be any measure of godliness without a strict following of the Mosaic laws. That was a foreign idea to the religious sect. In fact, we can read in Acts 15 when some were still saying, unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. In other words, unless you're following the customs of Moses, it's just a no-go for you. It was so ingrained that you had to do something. That being saved by grace alone through faith was just an inconceivable idea. Paul was also aware of the opposite end of that spectrum. Those in the antinomian camp and antinomian thinking just basically says there, there's, where, where grace is, it releases us from all morality. Antinomian is just basically means no moral law. That's that idea there. So if sin makes grace increase, then I will sin more so grace can increase more. And God can be glorified more. Understood this way, the doctrine of grace puts a premium on ungodliness. I hope you see the error there. You don't just want to be an ordinary sinner, you want to be an extraordinary sinner. It's worth mentioning that this line of thinking wasn't merely hypothetical as Paul's addressing this. In chapter 3, verse 8, Paul knew that people had said, you're saying to do evil so good may come. So a similar line of thinking has already been present in Romans. So he knew there were those people who said the gospel that he preached encouraged sinful behavior. Paul no doubt had this in mind as he writes our text this morning. So bottom line, I hope you see those two lines of thinking, the religious Jew and the the no moral law, are bad ideas. Beyond bad ideas, it's not Christian. It's not true. The pendulum has swung way out of bounds. It's not just too far. It's out of bounds. The first one adds to the work of Christ, and the latter uses the Savior as a doormat. And treating Christ as a doormat will most likely lead to rejection as one who deliberately continues in sin and tramples underfoot the Son of God, as Hebrews 10 refers to. So Paul, knowing these are coming his way, he knows these arguments are coming his way, he begins our text this morning. So Romans, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. I think it'll be on the screen. Mine's not working, but your guys' is. Um, Romans chapter 6, and we're going to read 1 through 7. Chapter 6, 1 through 7. I'll be reading from the ESV. Um, That's what's on the screen. If you have a different translation, we'll we'll figure it out. It'll all be good. All right, Romans chapter 6, 1 through 7. Here, pages turning. I love it. It says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that we, oh, I missed a line there, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life. 
For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we have a a time this morning set aside to look into it. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd be the teacher and open up us to your word and and your word to us, Lord, as we we look into it. And I pray that uh, we would all walk away with um, not only a greater knowledge, Lord, but a heart that's turned more to you and and more uh, thankful for what we have in you and what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So... Paul, as he often does, begins to answer this question, like grace more or sin more, is there, is there more grace for more sin? He begins to answer those questions that he knows are coming his way with this phrase, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And what I want to bring to the forefront here, and this will happen a few times today because it's going to be important, is this word continue and digging into what it means in the Greek. Epimeno is how you say it in the Greek if you care. This word continue, this, this weight that it carries is a habitual persistence. There's a sort of permanence that's connected with this word continue. So Paul here is saying, are you to make sin habitual, persistent, permanent thing do you remain doing this that's that's what continue is conveying do we stay in persistent life of sin so if the question is are we going to stay in this willful sinful pattern of life paul is not referring to the believer who sometimes makes a, a bad choice and sins he's not referring to the one who falls into the sin at times he's not making the case that all christians will be sinless because we're still weak and imperfect in the flesh we will still battle temptation the effects of this fallen world are everywhere but the distinction between the occasional mess up and weakness in the flesh versus the willful unrepentant habitual sin pattern is what he's pointing to so in other words can a person receive new life and continue in his old way of living does this god-given redemption one receive have no effect or power in those who are saved some would say yes But Paul gives a very definite answer and is going to expand on that in the next few verses. Can you continue in sin? In short, no. And if I said that correctly, I would have just yelled that with an exclamation point. No. It's big capital letters, no. There's no uncertainty in his answer. In the Greek, it's the very strong word. It carries the idea that it would be repulsive to even think that to be true for one millisecond. It's the strongest phrase that could be used in the New Testament Greek to express the complete and total rejection of an idea. It's a no. It's an impossibility. How dare you even think of that? Not in your life. May it never be. By no means could this ever be accepted. No, no, no. Did I say it enough times? I think that's what we're trying to convey here. If you think that is what you can do, then you've missed the whole point. This is all wrong. Such an attitude, deciding ahead of time to take advantage of God, shows that a person does not understand the seriousness of sin. God's forgiveness does not make sin less serious. 
Christ's death shows the dreadful seriousness of sin. Jesus paid with his life so we could be forgiven. The availability of God's mercy must not become an excuse for careless living and moral laxness. This was a repulsive idea to Paul that someone would think that sin in any way could bring glory to God. His answer conveys a sense of outrage and horror that this kind of idea could even be thought of as true because it's the opposite of the truth. The whole point of the gospel was not to find an excuse for sin, but to get freedom from sin. His answer is based on the logic of his next statement. You can't still continually live in sin if you've died to it. Logically, something that has died cannot be living. That's easy to understand. They are opposites. Important to note, he didn't say that sin is dead to the Christian, rather that we died to sin. His emphasis lies on the logical impossibility of a Christian continuing in a life that is dominated by sin. Because how could you continue in that life if that life is dead? The old can't be the new. I've run out of ways I can practically say it. Essentially, he's asking in theological terms, can justification truly exist apart from sanctification? Now you might say, okay, what does that mean? Those are big words. And it's okay to ask that. Personally, I'm a person, especially those of you who know me know this, I have a less than stellar vocabulary. And while I was in seminary, this was made really evident to me. There was conversations that I couldn't even be part of because I had no idea where they were going on the third word. I was done. But I loved the professors that would stand out and they stood above the rest when they would speak these words, but then they would define them. They would teach them. They wouldn't assume that everybody knew them. So they also wouldn't assume that everybody knew how they went together. I always appreciated those professors who took the time to explain the details. And at times, the preacher, I think, should also be the teacher. So I will attempt the same. I'm going to try to explain some of these details because I think it will be helpful. Whether new or review, bear with me. So I want to go over justification and sanctification. They might be familiar words. I hope they are. But what do they mean and how do they relate to one another? What Paul is really setting up here is, can justification be present without sanctification? So the slide up here, justification, is meaning you're declared righteous. You're not guilty. Your fine's been paid. You've been justified. You're saved from the penalty of sin, not by doing anything on your own, not by any of the works that you do, but by faith. Sanctification is you're set apart. You're devoted to God. He's working in you. You're saved from the power of sin. You're given a new life, a new nature. Believers undergo a process of sanctification as they yield to God's will and are transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. They go together. Justification speaks of our legal standing, of complete righteousness in the sight of God. We've been declared not guilty. Whereas sanctification refers or references God giving us a life that looks more and more like that not guilty standing that we have. Sanctification exists because we have been justified. They're not meant to be separated. This is really what Paul is addressing here. If you've been justified, then it will look like it by the way you live your life. Now, it might be on a different time scale. You are not fully sanctified the very next day. But God will complete the work he begins that we can be sure of. One pastor put it this way, 
and I like it, so I'll share it with you. Justification and sanctification are not separate stages in salvation. Rather, they are different aspects of the unbroken continuum of God's divine work of redemption in a believer's life, by which he not only declares a person righteous, but recreates him to become righteous. I love that because God not only declares the person to be righteous, but also enables that or recreates that for them to be righteous. So to say it another way, salvation is not only a legal transaction, but it results in a transformation. It's a transformation for you've died and your, and your life is hidden with Christ on high in God. That's Colossians 3. It's a transformation because if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation and the old has passed away and the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. So in a nutshell, you're justified and declared righteous at the moment of salvation and growing in the Lord and becoming spiritually mature happens over time as one is obedient to the word of God that's sanctification so for the believer you've been justified you are being sanctified and just for the sake of completing the argument you will eventually be glorified and when you are glorified you'll be forever with God in heaven more on that in Romans 8 so why are these important to understand Christians can make bad choices and choose to be disobedient, but where no change has taken place, one sort of has to start to wonder, because this is exactly what Paul is talking about when he says, how can one who is dead to sin still live in it? He can't be justified and live in the kingdom of darkness controlled by the power of sin. It's almost as if Paul's saying he knows no such thing as justification without sanctification, Remember, continuing in sin describes a lifestyle of habitual sinful practices. It's a life where sin reigns and death is the currency of that kingdom. The subjects are slaves and their future is hopeless. Why would anyone, given their freedom, want to remain in such a place, living such a life? But practically speaking, church, this does sort of create some tension. I'm not going to lie about that. I, I can't stand up here and tell you that if there's no evidence then if there's no evidence in somebody's life of sanctification, then they're not a believer. I can't say that with 100% certainty for a couple of reasons. One, the most obvious, I'm not God. And nobody knows the heart except God. And two, when it comes to sanctification in God's eyes, he's always working in the believer. There may be times in a believer's life they're choosing to live in disobedience, but that doesn't mean they're not saved. So in our limited view, we can only see sanctification when it's obvious to us. But God sees it as always happening in his children. So do you feel the tension? <laughs> I do. It's a good tension to have because I hear all the time when people say, well, I know Johnny will go to heaven because he believed when he was a child and he went to Awana. But the last 20 years have been rough. <laughs> He's not been to church. He hasn't picked up a Bible. He's declared himself to be an atheist. I'm not sure Johnny understood. I'm not sure Johnny really understood the gospel message yet. But my response to Johnny would be I would be sharing the gospel with him over and over, not condemning him. And I'm not saying that God does not honor childlike faith, but faith without fruit should be very worrisome. The book of James has a bit to say about that. Yet it remains true, if God has justified someone, he will complete the work he started. 
That's a fact. Regardless, if all we see in someone's life is disobedience and an apparent unchanged heart, then we need to give them the gospel. So there is a tension there. Maybe it's helpful to think of it this way. Unless we consider ourselves dead to sin, sin will continue to influence us. Unless we consider ourselves dead to sin and know that reality, then it will continue to influence. Let me just quote the Grace Crossing Bible Church Statement of Faith on Christian growth. I think this fits here. All of you I know have read the whole Statement of Faith, so this will be very familiar. As believers... We are in an ongoing process of becoming more like Christ in our actions and attitudes. This process continually sets us apart from the world of sin to the purpose of God in our lives. We actually share and participate in God's holiness as the Holy Spirit is active in our lives. The believer's practice of the Christian disciplines is essential to this progress. The continuous result is a life increasingly reflective of the character of God. Church, I would say that's sanctification. (laughs) It's a process. It's not a light switch. But it demands that justification has already happened. Still, there is not a great canyon between justification and sanctification. They are linked. And it's important to understand that because we live in an age of what some call easy believism, where some would say, all I have to do is just say sorry to God, and then I can go on and do whatever I want. I know I'm going to heaven. Again, may I remind you, such an attitude, deciding ahead of time to take advantage of God, shows that person does not understand the seriousness of sin. It's that very line of thinking here that Paul is saying, no. In a believer's life, there should be evidence that supports the verdict. And if our verdict is not guilty and we've been justified, then there should be evidence to support that. So Paul very simply gives his answer to the question, if grace abounds, shall we go on sinning? That's what we've been discussing this morning so far, and the answer is clearly no. But then he goes on to give a little more depth to that answer. In verse 3, he begins the question with the words, do you not know? In other words, what that sort of means there is, are you ignorant of this truth? Are you ignorant of this truth? It reminds me when Jesus dealt with the Pharisees, And he said, have you not read? Or in his conversation with Nicodemus, he said, are you the teacher in Israel, yet you don't understand these things? When Jesus, what Jesus and what Paul are implying here is these things should not be in question. They should be known. Remember, the whole premise here starts with the question of, should we keep on sinning so grace can abound? Paul is saying, look, if you actually recalled the truth and know what I've been saying, then you would know that that's just an impossibility. He expects his audience to know these things already. But Paul didn't give up on them with no explanation. He didn't say, well, since you're stupid and without understanding, I'm not going to say any more. That's not where he said. That's not what he did. He gives them a short but deep explanation as to why continuing in a life mastered by sin is an impossibility for one who has been justified. And he references baptism. So the apostle says, do you not know? That all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Now I should note here quickly that Paul mentions baptism here. There are a couple of ways to interpret this as we approach the text. What probably jumps off the page to most of you when you see the word baptism is water baptism. That's when one is fully immersed. We got to see that last week. And what comes to mind is a beautiful symbol 
And this is always explained when we do baptism as it should be. It's a beautiful symbol as going into the water. We're momentarily buried, identifying with Christ's burial. And church, that is true. That's what water baptism symbolizes. And if we think of our old self as dead and buried, if we think of our old life of sin as dead and buried, then we see what Paul's point in saying is how can you live in that that's dead and buried? But another way this word baptism here can be interpreted is, to say it another way, is a waterless baptism. And that might seem a bit weird, but what I mean by that is the moment that we confess Christ, you are justified, we are immersed in Christ. That's what the word baptism means, immersed. It completely influences us. It inundates us. May I say it in a positive way? It overwhelms us. You have heard the phrases like, oh, they're baptized by trials and fire, which really just means someone's going through a really difficult time. And there's trials. They're immersed in that. We don't actually mean they got burned. Maybe some of you have had seasons in your life where you've been inundated or immersed in your work through a very difficult task. You were all in. So I mention that because some say this refers to a water baptism and others say it refers to the moment you are justified in Christ. And I favor the latter because baptism by water is a symbol of the inward reality that's already taken place. At the moment of conversion, one is baptized into Christ. They're united with Christ. They're immersed in Christ. They are identified with Christ. They're in relationship with Christ. They've received the Holy Spirit. They're all in. It's a beautiful reality that happens in a moment when Christ justifies by faith. That's what saves. And water baptism is a symbol of what's already taken place. So... My concern is that if one takes this passage and interprets it as water baptism, then that could become a means of salvation rather than the demonstration of it. Paul here is using baptism as a picture of being immersed in this spiritual truth. So Paul is saying, do you not know that those who have been immersed into Christ Jesus were also immersed into his death? This is a state of being. It's a standing. Positionally, you are baptized into Christ Jesus. Therefore, since that's the case, your identity now changes. The old is gone. It is dead. So Paul says, do you not know that you once, or Paul says, do you not know that once, or that you once were, what you once were is dead because you're in Christ. What you once were is dead because you're in Christ. And spiritually, the old man that was ruled by sin, your old self has now been put to death because of Christ death. I like, I really like how succinctly one of the early church fathers puts it. John Chrysostom, he says, if then you died in your baptism, stay dead. I get it. Once you've died, you have no choice but to stay dead. The old is dead. The old is gone. That prisoner cannot return. It reminds me of the old saying, you can come to Jesus as you are, but you don't stay as you are. And Paul continues his explanation in verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. The old self is not only dead, but what do you do with dead bodies? You bury them. 
This points back to the historical fact that Christ did indeed die. His death is our death. And indeed, he was buried. Then we as believers also bury the old self. The burial points to the reality of death. If you remember last week, when Brent spoke of sin coming into the world through one man and death through sin, that man was Adam. But now in our relationship with Christ, our relationship with Adam is done. We've broken up with Adam. (laughs) There's no more relationship there because Adam's sin led to condemnation, but Christ's one act of righteousness leads to justification. That's a beautiful transaction. That's back in chapter 5. The old life governed by the relationship with Adam is now dead and buried. Church, I know I'm sounding like a broken record, but, but that's, that's what he's saying. <laughs> that's what he's saying. If, if, how can It's an impossibility for us to continue to live in the way we did before we were saved. The divine miracle has taken place. Paul says we're taken back some 2,000 years and made to participate in the death of Jesus, and we were buried with him. But just as Christ did not stay dead and was resurrected, so are we resurrected to a new life. This might lead us to ask the question, how is that even possible? Well, I can only appeal to the same scripture that you have in front of you. This is possible because the power of God. It says we were raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Glory also carries this idea of power here as well. I actually like how the New Living Translation captures it. It says, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. This is the power of God on display. This is the glory of God on display. I would also like to draw your attention to the word newness. This refers to a quality of character. There's a new character. There's a new spiritual life. Scripture is filled with descriptions of the believer's new spiritual life. Quickly, let's look at some of those. So Ezekiel 36, And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 18, Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Psalm 40, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Revelation 2, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. In Ephesians 4, and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. There's a newness that's described in Scripture. And again, in verse 5, Paul continues to speak of this connection with Christ. We are baptized into Christ. We are united with Christ. He says we've been united with him in death, and we'll certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, when we think of resurrection, we usually think of something pointing to the future, or maybe when Christ was resurrected. 
But we think of something pointed to the future where, where one day we'll be in our glorified bodies. And that's, that's the right frame of mind here. But the fact that the resurrection is pointing to something future rationally indicates what has already taken place. The moment we place our faith in Christ and become justified, the old is gone and the new has come. Church, that points to forward. That points to a future resurrection. Those who are raised up with Christ, walking in a newness of life now, united in his death and resurrection now, will be the ones who experience that future glorious resurrection when we are to be and live with Christ forever. Because our present reality we look forward to our future promised hope. Then Paul wraps up his answer to our question this morning of, shall we just keep on sinning? In verses 6 and 7, which is just an explanation, exclamation point on what he's already said. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So just to review quickly where we have been. And this is answering the question, should we just keep on sinning? No, because if you're dead to sin, how can you live in it? You are baptized into Christ Jesus. You are immersed. Your identity changes. And you're in, you, you are united with Christ. Specifically united in his death, burial, and resurrection. Now the final portion of this text... Paul basically circles back to the first statement in answering the question with a question. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, after talking about the unity and identity in Jesus, he puts some more meat on those bones. And verses 6 and 7 basically says, the old sinful self has been killed. He's already identified that we died to sin. Now he says the reason that is is because the old sinful self is dead. Similar to what we've done this morning with a few words already, I do want to focus in on the word old here. <laughs> it, it's, it doesn't refer to age. This doesn't refer to something that we might say is old that's 100 years old. That's not what old is referring to here. There's a word for that in the Greek, but that's not the one used. The one used here is something that's completely worn out. It's useless. It no longer has any value. That's the old self. Our old self has been crucified. As Paul thinks, as Paul links the death of our old self with Christ's crucifixion, it's dead. I know it seems like we're coming back to the same thing, but that's where Paul draws us back to. You have a new nature. A new nature. Now again, I at least want to mention or address some tension here as well. <laughs> There's tension here that exists in different theological circles. I really strongly dislike when I'm reading commentaries from different theologians and pastors, both of whom I respect very much and they don't agree. I hate that. The only thing I hate more than that is when I think I have a really good idea, but I can't find anybody else that said it. That just means I'm wrong. So, so I, reading these things, there's two camps here. The tension is this. Some would say that the Christian has two natures, an old and a new. And now we live in a continual war zone. We're born with a sinful nature, but when we were saved, we were given a new nature in Christ. The new nature does not do away with the old. Thus, man has two natures. They would liken this to a good dog and a bad dog, and the one who grows is the one you feed. And there are some that believe that. Some I respect very much that believe that. But I just can't get to that point. 
I can't accept that. I can't accept two natures when we've just read over and over again how the old sinful nature is crucified, dead, and buried. What can a corpse do? This doesn't mean that we become sinless and our new spirituality is, is because it's still bound up in flesh. Our new, our new nature is still bound in flesh. We, can't rem we can remember the dead guy and foolishly still let it influence us, I suppose, but he's still dead. To illustrate this, I found a story of someone who served in the Navy, and I think this will help us as he writes this. When I was in the Navy, we called the captain of the ship the old man. Our old man was tough and crusty, and nobody liked him. He used to go out drinking with his, all of his chiefs while belittling and harassing his junior officers and making life miserable for the rest of us. He was not a good example of a naval officer. So when our old man got transferred to another ship, we all rejoiced. It was a great day for our ship. Then we got a new skipper, a new old man. The old, old man no longer had any authority over us. He was gone completely out of the picture, but I was trained under that old man. How do you think I related to the new old man? At first, I responded to him just like I'd been conditioned to respond to the old skipper. I tiptoed around him, expecting him to bite my head off. That's how I'd lived for two years around my first skipper. But as I got to know the new skipper, I realized that he wasn't a crusty old tyrant like my old, old man. He wasn't out to harass his crew he was a good guy, really concerned about us, but I had been programmed for two years to react to a certain way when I saw the captain's braids. I didn't need to react the way I did any longer, but it took several months to recondition myself to the new skipper. You also once served under a cruel, self-serving skipper, your old sinful self with its sinful nature. The admiral of the fleet is Satan himself, the prince of darkness, but by God's grace you've been transferred into Christ's kingdom. You now have a new skipper. Your new self is infused with the divine nature of Jesus Christ. Your new admiral, as a, chi your new admiral. As a child of God, a saint, you are no longer under the authority of your old, old man. He is dead, buried, and gone forever. So why do you still react as if your old skipper were still in control of your behavior? That's a story that he laid out, and I like his conclusion. You see, the old, the old man had no choice but to be enslaved to sin. There's no other option. That's what slavery is. But as Paul finishes up this section, he proclaims this glorious truth. For one who has died has been set free from sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. We have a new skipper. And now we strive for obedience to our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. We are set free from sin not free to sin, as some would have supposed when Paul said, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So if the old self is dead, why is there still sin in our lives? Can we achieve a sinless life? The short answer to that is no. 1 John 1.8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That puts to rest whether we can achieve a sinless life here on earth. There's a battle because even though we're given a new nature, that new nature is confined to flesh. That spiritual new nature is confined to our physical body, which resides in a fallen world. The new birth in Christ's death, to, uh, it, it brings death to the sinful self, but it does not bring death to the temporal flesh that is corrupted by all of its inclinations. This is why one day, church, we look forward not only to being justified and sanctified, 
but also glorified when we are with Jesus and sin no more. It's true, church, we're all born with a sin nature, and if it's left untouched by the amazing gospel of Jesus Christ, and we, we will die in that sin. But Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, was crucified, he died and he was buried, but he rose three days later conquering death. And isn't it an amazing thing for those of us who call him Lord? We also have died and was buried and have been raised to a new life. The old is gone. To close this morning, I'm not going to give you my own words. It's often said that a good sermon wraps up with a good summation and application. But I can do no better at this point than what the Apostle Paul wrote when he was writing to the church in Colossae. I trust you'll see the connection as we read the word of God to close. So I'll ask you to stand and go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 3. It will not be on the screen, but you will find it in your Bible. If you can't find it in your Bible, I'll give you a new Bible. So Colossians 3, and we're going to read 1 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put all of them away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put on the old self, or seeing that you put off the old self with its practices. And you put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called, in one body and be thankful let the word of christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to god and whatever you do in word or deed do everything in the name of the lord jesus giving thanks to god the father through him so we're told to sing spiritual songs so we're going to remain standing as we do that and we have a declaration this morning notice what we're going to sing. It says, all I have is Christ. At the end of the day, I can't bring anything. I can't bring anything to it. Justification is there because of Christ. And I love how this, this song gives this perspective of the old man turning new because of the redemption we have in Jesus. 
How thankful I am as the song proclaims that as I ran to my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. That cross changes everything. So let's sing that together. <laughs> 